On today's episode, I have my uh, friend, Josh Berry. Uh, we've known each other for a few years. We worked on uh, a couple projects together at his company, Iconic. Uh, he's probably one of the nicest people I know and one of the most genuine individual individuals. <laughs> and uh, Josh, congratulations. Today is the first big day of your book launch, Dare to be Naive. So on the on the cover of the book, I prepped you for this, so hopefully you have you wrote the books, I'm hoping you have an answer, but how do you find yourself in a noisy world today? Uh, Trevor, thanks for having me here. Uh, you're right. Uh, the the subtitle to Dare to be Naive is How to Find Your True Self in a Noisy World. And I think the best way to do it is to continually question yourself. <laughs> you have to not take where you're at as like the set state of where you are. And it's only through, honestly, the, the tension and the friction with the noise that I think you continually find your true self. And so it, the, the book itself actually doesn't tell you, here's the 12 steps you need to do to find your true self. Uh, the book is much more reflective in nature and just uses a lot of stories and anecdotes to like poke at people's heads and their hearts to get them to question, well, what, what do you actually believe? And what do you actually think? So that hopefully they keep kind of peeling back the layers of, of maybe who they actually are, uh, even if it's a little bit different compared to what might be in the mainstream. So what's what's like one of the things from the book? Because it just came out, so I have not read it yet. But what's one of the one of the ways that you do that? I know you said it's not like, here's the 12 steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, yeah. One of the chapters in there is, uh, it, it, it's, it is related to business, uh, but it isn't necessarily a business book. But a lot of the examples are uh, things that relate back to business. One of them is mm -hmm. allowing your employees to have side hustles. <laughs> and it shows yeah. uh, examples and research and stories of people, uh, especially leaders who've said, you know what, uh, the idea of I'm renting your time for pay is starting to be a little bit more outdated. And uh, so if if I'm not going to have that same agreement with you anymore, and people are doing stuff outside of their hours anyways, why wouldn't I at least want to know what they're doing sometimes, or at least not block it. And so to the point of, uh, it doesn't exactly say like, and here's how you change your HR policies to have it. It presents the stories, it prevents the, the research. And then at the end of the chapter, like all of the chapters in the second half of the book, it just says, okay, what do you believe? Like, do you think it's wrong? Like, do you think uh, maybe you wouldn't be able to trust people if you knew that they had another job? Uh, is it all right? Um, and, and so what it does is it just prompts the reader to think through a couple of those ideas. And then it goes through a series of four questions uh, that I believe are essential to helping someone really start to peel back and, and understand what it is that they believe. Um, and those questions are, uh, okay, let's say you believe, um, no, I, I, it's not I can't trust people to have another job outside of their full-time job. Okay, great. Where did you learn that? Is it really true? And what do you gain and what do you lose by holding that belief? And so it's a way to uh, almost in some ways develop a little bit more mindfulness around what you actually believe because you're trying to create a little bit more objectivity from uh, that belief that has led to some of your practices and uh, what you might actually believe. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing you've ran through some of these, this exercise yourself. Has, has there been anything where you kind of caught yourself saying like, like you had a very strong belief about something and then you ran through this exercise and you were like, oh man, maybe I do have a slightly outdated belief or when you realize where it came from, you were kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe I need to check myself on it. Maybe, I, maybe the real question is, is what's the root of this exercise? Like, how did you come up with it? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll answer the first and then I'll answer the second part of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, there have been a number of beliefs that I've had, and, and these ones might even sound counter to, to what other people might believe. So I had believed in the past that I really didn't need to uh, prioritize taking care of myself or, or other self-care things because it was way more important to take care of other people. And that's what a servant leader does. And they continually serve, serve, serve. And um, that sounds like a terrible, like humble brag now that I, now that I hear that out loud. <laughs> but the point that I want to get to it in that is uh, the first question of where did you learn that? I can point and be like, oh, look, all these management gurus said that. And uh, some of my upbringing, uh, there was definitely things uh, growing up in the Midwest that said like, that's how you that's how you lead. And then the next question of, is it true? Is it really true that... Um, I need to be a servant leader. Everybody else is, is, is before me. In some instances, that works. What do I gain from it? Well, that was an easy one. Like, oh, people see me. You even said it at the beginning. Like, people see me as a nice, generous person, etc. But what do I lose through that? And that was an interesting spark, right? Like, okay, so what do you lose? And when I was really honest with myself, I realized that sometimes I lose uh, even having an opinion on where things should go or a vision, thinking that, oh, collaboration and co-creation and everybody else's needs and wants are more important and that's the way to do things. And it wasn't until really digging in uh, that I realized that sometimes even some of that selflessness was less effective and and uh, less healthy probably than, yeah. than maybe seeing it more as a spectrum of, of selfish to selfless, uh, especially in leadership. So that's the answer to your first question. Answer the second question. Where did the questions come from? I first heard a variation of these four questions on a podcast, like all good information should be consumed. <laughs> and, um, and when I chased that down, I learned that the origin of, of the first, at least to me, of the first version of these four questions came from uh, a psychologist and therapist named Byron Katie. And she has applied this information. In fact, even if you Google Byron Katie and the four questions like this, this there's a variant of this, which is her model. Um, and so wherever I can, I like to plug that I didn't come up with the first. I just took these, modified them, and hopefully I'm one of the first people applying them here in business <laughs> to be able to help people maybe peel back uh, some of their things. Uh, just on a side note, because since I know a lot of people listening to this are really interested in lifestyle design and, and whatnot, Tim Ferriss, a couple of weeks ago in his Five Bullet Friday, actually referenced Byron Katie's four questions and the ladder of inference, which I also use in my talks as like the one-two combo to help people get more toward their authentic selves. So uh, definitely didn't create this myself. Yeah, that's really interesting because I like I grew up in the Midwest as well. I mean, I'm, I'm in Iowa right now and I'm, I'm curious as to you said that there were things that you learned that you like leadership style things that you learned and changed. I, I'm guessing you changed based on how you phrased it. Um, can you give an example of something you might have learned growing up or like from leaders you saw early on in your career? that you then recognized as something you want to do differently? And then what did you do? How did you, how do you, because it's hard to make those changes because you kind of have to look in the mirror and be like, okay, maybe I've been trying to do it like them and I think they're wrong <laughs> or yeah. I'm not, yeah. something's off and I have to make a change. And if those people that you're working with also grew up in the same environment, they might also have that like in their workplace DNA. How do you work through that? That's really tricky. I, there's a couple examples that come to mind. Um, the first is in my first career, uh, 
working internationally for a human resources <clears throat> consulting company. Uh, it was a very strengths-based and positive psychology-based culture. Um, and I would say the positives to that was was a lot of idealism, a lot of optimism, a lot of focusing on the good in people. And I saw some mm -hmm. of those things and, and wanted to emulate uh, those things. Not saying it's the exact opposite side of that coin, but something that I saw that was also very prevalent was any attempt to address a weakness was seen as like focusing too much on negativity. And therefore, it kind of uh, continued to breed a conflict avoidance. Well, you have that culture, and then you combine it with some of the baggage that I brought in from my childhood, which was uh, things that led to being a super people pleaser and, and trying to get out of conflict in any way possible, even if it created like lukewarm meh situations, because I was just trying to keep peace. And it just probably accelerated some of my view of like, oh, look, the way to lead is just to focus on what's great. And oh, we better not get into this conflict. So I was in this kind of sometimes probably even a vicious cycle of continuing to perpetuate some of that. And so, um, you know, the last now 10 years uh, since I've been out on my own and then with the company that we've established, some of it has been an unlearning of the value of, of decent conflict and, and even the idea of, of the value of, of an appreciation of weakness, right? And, and the strength that comes from that and the vulnerability that can come from that. And, and then that led to a bunch of other understandings that you know trying to pursue a win-win situation all of the time isn't always the best outcome because some of our biggest problems in the world, there's going to be short-term losers at them. And if I try to pursue that, like I can't actually help uh, probably the people who need some of the most help out there. And so uh, there was definitely a lot of unlearning that had to happen. And, and it came from iterations and stubbing my toe back to your question of how um, uh, hard, harsh feedback from people who loved me and, and cared for me. And, and then me being able to be open to receiving that and saying like, okay, great. Now, now, now how do I do it? And some of that then I think led to some of my extreme interest in this book, which is what are those beliefs that we have that limit us from the next evolution of growth or consciousness, right? That we have and, and how might we create a little bit of space for, for myself and for others to be able to explore what some of those limiting beliefs might be? Yeah, that sounds like a really powerful exercise. Like, cause it's, and it's hard. I mean, I think anybody who does any level of introspection, reflection, they're probably going to stumble upon something about like their own belief, beliefs or frameworks, how they do things. And they're probably going to find something where maybe they don't like it or they realize maybe they're emulating somebody maybe from their childhood or earlier in their career where they might not even look up to. I'm kind of speaking for myself a little bit. Um, sure. And you realize you're like doing that. And then you um, it's not it's kind of a sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow because you're like maybe you're like, oh, I don't I don't want to do things that way. I want to do things my way. And then by doing things, I don't know, you kind of subconsciously can pick these things up. So you it requires that reflection plus then also being able to be like, okay, like I understand it and like some accountability of making those changes. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and some appreciation that maybe some of those leaders were there for a reason or, mm -hmm. or for a specific season uh, of life, like to help you with something. Right. Like, I, right. and so, you know, I'm grateful for, some of those leaders that I don't hold up or esteem as much anymore as I used mm. to at that time. And I'm grateful for what I had during those times with them. Uh, but it is a hard pill to swallow. 
if and this is back to the big if in terms of like some self-work there, right? Like if you're not yeah. open to like getting above the line and being open and curious and more committed to learning than committed to being right and holding on to what you need. And, you know, that's, that's, I think, a constant thread through a lot of things that I've seen in life. Mm-hmm. Even some of the stuff that I've seen you do, Trevor, like there is this constant, like, I don't have it figured out yet. And that's okay. And, and that journey and that flow is is part of it. Yeah. But you, get, but you got to hold a lot of the outcomes a lot looser. I think you can't see it on my camera. Mm-hmm. There we go. I'm holding it like this. You got to hold those outcomes <laughs> a lot looser uh, if you're going to flow a little bit more like that. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like you have to just, I, I <clears throat> this is such a cliche saying, but it's like, trust, trust the process, just like test, try things out. Like I, I remember when I, when I, I travel, I, traveled quite a bit now but when i was doing it full time like what i did to start is i just like i did a 10 day test so i was like will this i don't i'm i'm scared i don't know if i can do this <laughs> i don't know what's gonna happen so i'm gonna go try a little and then i worst thing that happens is like i have a nice vacation and i come home yeah. and that's it i'm done but i loved it and then i just went like all in on that having like traveling and doing like the digital nomad type thing mm-hmm. and i think it's like the same stuff for or same thing when you're looking at maybe leadership in the workplace, when you're trying to to like find your true self, your your, your voice, uh, your path, it's like I feel like I'm asking you a leading question <laughs> a little bit. But in my in my opinion, I think that people generally like not I'm 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 encompassing too many people with this, but some people maybe look at some of these changes, reflections, these workplace changes, career changes, personal changes, and they might get too caught up in like the big thing when in essence you can just start really small there you go and and make small changes do small tests see the impact before blowing up your organizational structure <laughs> telling everyone that on fridays they get to work on their own side hustle under your on your payroll or something <laughs> you know I, I, you hit it there and uh i don't want to make this a ton about our our work at iconic but what makes some of our work at Econic unique is about half of our work is in innovation, strategy, and practices. The other half is evolving how and why people do work. And we bring those things together quite often in saying, hey, you want to shift how you do recruitment? You want to shift how you do onboarding? You want to shift how you do performance management? You want to, whatever the the workplace practice is, we say, well, how about we design experiments with assumptions and hypotheses that we could test? And oh, by the way, at the same time as we're working with a team to figure out and learn and iterate through your onboarding uh, evolution that you're trying to do, you're also helping the people practice those same behaviors that you need more of in your organization in general. Right. And so uh, it goes to the heart of a lot of of why I I love work. And that is that I think work is a great sandbox to practice more of the behaviors that we need in life and community and society when it's done well. Right. Like like taking a small group of people and having them be curious, being open to diverse opinions, being empathetic to the customer or the employees that they're trying to serve. Uh admitting what they don't know and being able to learn something new, collaborating, like all these things. Like I think society in general would be better if we all got to practice more of this. And we have a reason to pay people like to practice these things and make our businesses better in the long run. It feels like a the trifecta. I don't know if I added three things in there or quadfecta. <laughs> I don't bet on horses, so I don't know what the, the things are, but it sounds like a lot of wins. <laughs> yes. So, I want to 
take a step back before we go down any more other I, I bring us down any more rabbit holes um I, i'm trying to think of when we met we probably met at like the iowa startup accelerator back in like 2015 yeah right 2014 mm-hmm. something about like right. that almost 10 years ago that's crazy um crazy crazy so you've done a lot of stuff in your career since then like iconic was only a couple years old um when I think when we met and I hadn't even started more... Econic yet. It was December of 2015. I was, I was solo when we first oh. met, I think back in 2014. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so Econic had, hadn't even been born yet and yep. you were pretty much, so you've run Econic for, how long is it? Eight, seven, eight years, something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> long time. And I, I don't know, what did you do before Econic, just for context? So so I had a couple of years of trying to figure out what we wanted to do, which was mm-hmm. uh, working with startup accelerators, thinking I was going to start mm-hmm. a startup accelerator, doing workshops and coaching at Iowa Startup Accelerator and a couple other dozen around the U.S. And then prior to that was 10 years in uh, international human resources consulting, where I was facilitating, doing workshops, leading client work, leading sales, strategic alliances, um, those types of things. Yeah. But about 10 years of that sort of work, went out on my own in mm-hmm. my first failed startup, uh, then started working with a bunch of other startups. We had Family Box, that subscription box thing on the side for a couple of yeah. years there too, which gave me some unique B2C experience, which I'd never had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Econic was, was 2015. Yeah. yeah. And you're still, that's like still your, your main thing, right? That, that is the main thing. Yep. Uh, we got, yes. we got, we got payroll, we got benefits, we got all, all the main yeah. thing stuff. <laughs> well, I, I see you, I see you posting lots of stuff on LinkedIn. So I'm always like, I'm like, is this author book related? Is this Econic related or is this something different? So I'm always, I'm not always a hundred percent clear if like you have, I don't know, you just look like somebody who's doing a lot of cool stuff. So I, I never know if it's separate or the same. <laughs> so it's I just all the same. To and to be clear, the book is connected to Econic as well. Uh, yeah. It's it's not a tradition. Not tra- I don't even say it's traditional. It's not. Nowadays, there's this whole modern author trend of like, make the book that turns into the workshop, that turns into the business, turns into the online course. Mm-hmm. It's not that type of book. Um but it is one that likely the people who resonate with the book likely would resonate with the type of work that we do at Econic. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and just like the, I know you don't want to dive too much into Econic, but give me like this, the elevator pitch for Econic. What does Econic do? Yep. Uh, we are a team of facilitators, coaches, consultants who work with mid-sized companies to help them evolve the how and why they do business. Uh, this typically looks like an you know, organization says, we need to have more growth mindset or we need, to, um, we need to have more psychological safety or help us build an innovation lab. And uh, we come in and we do custom and configured programming around that, um, work with leadership teams to help them shift their mindset number of things there. Yeah. Uh, you and I first worked together uh, back uh, on John Deere, actually there in Iowa. Yep. We were building an yeah. internal accelerator program for John Deere. Yeah, that, that seems like a lifetime ago. There's so much that feels like it's <laughs> That was several since. years ago. That was, uh, but, but I liked you so much from the Iowa startup uh, accelerator days that you were a great addition to the team during that project. That was a fun, fun project. I think I was just a lot more, I feel like I was just much, much more naive and gung ho at that point in my life where I was like confidently incorrect about a lot of things. So, <laughs> but I think that's kind of part of being in startup world is like, you kind of have to be, you have to have some confidence or faith that the direction you're heading will cultivate some type of win. Yeah. Cause if you don't, then you're pr- probably not even going to start. So, yep. 
so that's that's a lesson I've learned is to be still be confident, but try to try to tone it back and be less incorrect sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we we it, it, tying back to the book, it's what I call a chosen naivete, right? Yeah. Like, like you're naive, um, but it but it's beyond beyond just like this ignorance and it's beyond this like hyper rational like you can come to a spot where you can say huh what feels reasonably and intuitively true and mm. and not quiet sometimes that feeling inside of you like i wonder i maybe we could do this and yeah do a quick little logic check but don't don't lose that voice that's also saying hey what about this uh part of mm. what you're thinking yeah i think that that absolutely makes a lot of sense so in this entire like time frame you've had all this experience you've I'm curious about your failed startup too, but we'll, we can come back to that. Um, you could have written a lot of different books. You could have written like books on very specifically, like I, I haven't read this one. So maybe some of these topics are baked into it, but I feel like you could have written stuff on like starting a startup, um, building innovation in corporations, like, like how to build teams, innovative thinking, these exercises. And it feels like this one is more personal a little bit. Like it has a, more of a personal touch. Like I feel like when I read the, Title and I and I've re, I like I said I haven't read the book yet but the um, when I was looking at the landing page it felt like something you would write versus something that was like here we're making like we're just making like you could have written any book why this one I guess is what I'm asking <laughs> um, so being vulnerable I don't know um, and maybe we can get into what the writing process was like if that's interesting to you but I yeah I this book kind of just came out of me right and and several months ago when i was trying to reflect on the well why did you write the book um somebody asked it in the way they're like what inspired you to write the book and what hit me was like oh the word inspire is just in spirit it just means something was breathed into you right like you can't rationally explain inspire you we try to add words to it later and I feel like that is a little bit of how this book came about. And so yeah. during the writing process, it was a lot of just kind of following patterns and following trends and seeing how stuff unfolded. And and this this is what it came out. And, and there's structure to it and process. We can, we can talk about those sorts of things. But at the core of it, you're right, like absolutely could have written another book on innovation practices and strategies or strength management or great cultures or there's all those books. Um, there's also probably a part of me that still likes to feel original. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. the fact that like those books had already been written, um, I was already like, ah, oh, because actually the first book that I started out writing was more probably like a, something that would have ended up being like a tenth of what uh, Conscious Capitalism or Firms of Endearment or one of those great Raj Sisodia books would have been like. Uh, in fact, I even read uh, his penultimate book, The Healing Organization. And after I read it, I'm like, I should stop writing. I just need to go promote this. But this was the book I was trying to write. And mine is going to be nowhere near as good as this. And... Uh, and it was then later in conversations with Raj talking about my book that I realized, oh, I'm not meant to write another book like what he writes. Like I've, I've got something else that I want to bring to the world that is a different bent or a different angle to this. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's how it came out. Yes, it is a bit personal in that uh, there's a lot of my lessons and growth in it. There are some stories personally as well as iconic in it. 
but most of the book is about uh, other people's stories and research and and all the anecdotes there. Right? Like the second chapter is like an entire early years of Patagonia and Yvonne Chouinard mm. and some of his early journey, just because it's such a great example of trying to build a business in a way that the rest of the world was looking at saying like, why are you doing that? And, you know, continually doing stuff that other people think is naive. And yet he was just following a different, different voice that was inside of him. Yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I saw him speak probably around 2016, 2017 in Cedar Rapids, he came and spoke at uh, wow. college. Yeah. He's a, he is a fiery individual, man. He is very, very passionate about conservation and, and saving the environment and like just he's he's older now but his his like he is just he just got a really i don't know how else to describe it but like this super strong fire like he's i think they're still fighting the u.s government now like they sued them they were suing them he was in the process of doing it um when he was there and he was up on stage like <laughs> cursing up a storm like like just just like it's all students and he was like man like you have to get out and like you have to like stand up for things that you believe in you have to fight for what you, what you like the type of world you want to build and and these types of things and he was giving examples of what he was doing which was hmm. it was crazy so <clears throat> but i guess that kind of speaks for the direction patagonia has taken yeah oh, it's probably since the beginning so absolutely absolutely yeah. so you were talking a bit about oh before we, before we dive into writing process, I want to know, <laughs> so you've clearly had some, like, I think if somebody's looking at things from the outside, right, you had a successful career doing international, you said HR consulting, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to summarize, then you're, you had, um, I don't know if a lot of people would know that you had the startup and then you have basically Iconic and now you're selling, I think you've sold thousands of copies of your book at this point. That's not bad. So it sounds like you've just had a ton of wins pretty consistently, <laughs> but I want to talk about, I want to talk about the failed startup. <laughs> so we don't have to talk about what it was or what, what you, yeah. like what happened or anything like that. But I'm curious as to like, I've, I've been a part of, I've tried so many things that haven't worked out. I, I feel like I've tried, like when I talk to the average, even like the average entrepreneur, I'm just like, man, I have, I still feel like my at-bats are very, very high. Some have been done very well. Some have been epic failures. <laughs> just that just never went anywhere. <laughs> my own, my own personal, let's see, learning lessons, whatever. But how, like, what did you learn when that startup didn't work out? And how did you take that? and apply it, like what lessons you learn and how did you apply that to like your career and life moving forward? Yeah, so I will give you a couple fails in there um, just so we can, <laughs> we can have a more realistic batting average. So when I left uh, that first company, we put our house up for sale and we were pregnant with our fourth child to go into this first startup. Uh, so it was, it was an all in sort of moment. Um, I was grateful. Trisha, uh, my partner, was still working full time, so we still had benefits. So that was a plus. But went in full time on this, and within a couple of months, uh, realized that it wasn't going to work. Um, there were intellectual property issues that I wasn't aware of. There were cash flow issues. Um, the other individuals um, were still working on other projects, um, and it just wasn't a fit. And so within a few months, it actually became pretty clear, like, oh, 
well, what did I do? And, uh, and then the house didn't sell for near as much as we thought it would. And it was definitely um, one of those times where the big lesson that I came out of it probably could have been, don't be so naive in jumping into things. And yet what came out of it was like, huh, I'm still okay and we're fine and we'll figure stuff out. And it was over coffees with a couple of other entrepreneurs sharing some of the things that I wish I would have known and done, like <laughs> validating the problem and talking to more customers before jumping into it and those things that other founders started saying, yeah, we have those same issues too. And I'm like, yeah, these are the things you should do. And they said, yeah, you should join us and help us fix that. And I'm like, yeah, if you pay me. And and uh, and within a couple of months, I was able to pick up a couple of contracts, uh, coaching and working with other startups. And then, and then that led to, oh, maybe I want to have a, an accelerator program. And then that led to the next thing. And so a big lesson that was in, in a lot of that was kind of following intuition and joy and maybe holding some of the outcomes a little bit looser. Outcomes being like status and what are people going to think? Like, like we, we sold our house and moved into a smaller home, which we're still in. And you know what? It's just fine. And it's great. And like each of those moments, whether they're good or bad, and probably even more so in the bad moments, air quotes there, uh, you're like, huh, I'm still here. Right? I saw this great meme recently. It was like a pie chart that said percent of worst days ever you survived. And it was like 100%. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's brilliant. Uh, and yet we forget that the next worst day we have. And um, so I think there was a lot of resilience that was built there. Another one was uh, the subscription box business that we did. We started it as a as a ministry. It was kind of like crafts in a box, like Sunday school in a box uh, for kids ages four to nine. And uh, it was a great project that Trisha and I and the kids worked on for almost two years. And it became pretty clear within the first 10 or 11 months, even as a side project, that the business model mechanics didn't didn't work out for subscription boxes. Uh, now, I think a lot of people have seen that the majority of those didn't work out as well. And uh, we still worked at it for another year, eventually licensed it to someone else. They eventually went out of business. Like So that was also one that I wouldn't call like a raging success, but there's so much learning uh, that came out of that. Even in the early years of Econic, uh, I started out with a 50-50 partner. And um, based on how we were growing and what we were focusing on, I I got to a point where I, I kind of said I had a, I, I tell people I had a too big of ego, too small of heart moments where I was like, ah, I don't see this working out with you partner anymore and initiated kind of buying him out. And, and it caused, it was, he was a good friend and it's caused a riff in our relationship still to this day. And there have been plenty of other decisions and things that I have done even over these last eight years of Econic that didn't turn out the way that I thought they were going to. And like, I, I'm still okay. And I've learned a hell of a lot uh, as I continue to move through it. And so um, that self-awareness, that grace you give yourself, that ability to learn when to go back and to apologize to people to say like, oh, you know what? 2017, Josh, was a real jerk to you. I'm sorry. Like, and, and like those sorts of things um, have all been great lessons. It reminds me of a conversation I had. I was in, um, was in Bosnia um and I, I stayed at this, uh, this place called the War Hostel. There's like the New York Times did a write up on it where you stay in like a simulation of what the siege of Sarajevo was like with a local family. Wow. And 
you know, most people would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I signed up to stay there for a week, like no electricity, no running water, <laughs> nothing. You slept on the floor, but the fan, you stayed in the family's house that survived the siege. And, um, the guy who grew up during the siege, he was four when it started, he runs this, like they call it a living museum. <clears throat> and so mm. I interviewed him. And one of the things he said is like, you know, a lot of people get caught up in, uh, like things that don't matter that much. Like you said, you were talking about like status. What do other people think? Uh, I have to have a smaller house. And he just is like, you know, people go to the beach and they complain because the sand isn't the right, it's not the right texture or it's too warm. And it's like, man, there's people that have a plastic pool in their backyard that are going to go sit in it and think it's the best thing ever. And, you know, there's people that have been through some of these experiences that don't survive. So every day that you wake up is really like a second chance to do whatever it is that you want to do. Mm. And, mm. you know, whatever, whatever it is, like if you're still alive, you still have a chance. Yeah. And I think also keeping in perspective that like, I'm guilty of this sometimes as well, <laughs> where I'm like, oh man, my, I don't have the newest iPhone. That's depressing. Um, <laughs> and it's like, dude, I have an iPhone though. Like, do you have an, like some people can't even get a cell phone at all. Some yeah. people can't afford the next meal. Why am I complaining about not having the newest technology? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just um, mm-hmm. kind of remind me of his perspective on things a little bit. But I think that like just taking the time when you when these things don't work out and looking at I started a food cart when I was 20, 21 with mm-hmm. a couple of friends of mine. And it did not work out because of there was some stuff that happened and we had to like ask one person to step out of the company. And then it was just like in such a bad state after that, that we just had to like close it and sell everything off. Hmm. And it took me a while to like come to grips, not grips, come to like find the lesson. Yeah. Cause I was like, oh man, what could I have done differently? I'm like, well, I did all these things. I worked really hard. And then I was like, maybe the lesson is like, I have to be more careful. Like just because I like someone doesn't mean it's somebody I should go into business with. Hmm. Like hmm. I could have done more due diligence things like that. So I think there's always, even in, and in wins too, it's like, what would I, what could I have done differently, better? What did I learn? Yeah. And I think that comes back to your book, like being, being aware of the reflection, asking yourself questions yeah, and taking the time to do the self work. I, I, I think so. And being able to be okay with saying I, I might be wrong, right? What else? Uh, God forbid. Right? Like that's, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> exactly. But I think being able to sometimes start from that point of view um, is is so powerful. Uh, I growing up, I loved improv. Uh, and in yeah. fact, for my for my launch party, we're, we're doing like a small little improv thing. Uh, and one of the greatest things from improv is is yes. And right, like this, the idea oh. of like something brings it to you. And you could say like, Oh, yeah, that and let's build this and how that actually builds energy and momentum. And when someone brings you another idea, like you, you can like, no, or you can be like, yes. And you can choose if you want to hold on to it or keep it right. Somebody else's idea, somebody else's polarizing opinion, any of those sorts of things. Like, and, and I find it's so powerful, this, I might be wrong or this yes. And sort of idea, even with people you don't agree with, like, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday and he said uh, they were practicing this with like silly prompts, like, I think pushing your car to work is the best idea ever. And, and someone being like, 
Yes. Uh, and man, that would be really, really great exercise that you'd be able to get. And what <laughs> if uh, you were able to like push other people in the car? And my point in bringing up that example is the moment you like made inclusion happen, like, well, then like people's defenses start to go down. You can start to have other conversations. You can start to, you can start to do things, right? Like there's already a lot of diverse opinions and ideas that are out there. Sometimes you have to start with like inclusion of people and things so that people know that they're in relationship and that you can then talk about things or you can talk about differences or whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. This was something I've had to call myself out on recently, <laughs> which is like, it's really easy to say, no, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Like, no, we can't do that. Like, I don't even remember what it was. It doesn't even matter. But I, I was doing some journaling and I was like, oh man, I keep, I'm realizing like, I never used to say no to stuff. Like no, as in like, no, we can't do that. Or no, <laughs> that's like, yeah, I, I see what you mean. But no, that just, I, that just can't happen. I used to, I think in the past, I would always be like, how, how is that? How can we do it? Like if a world existed where this was possible, what would that look like? <laughs> and I think when you stop saying no, and you start saying how, like there's an exercise from a book called, uh, I think it's called the Medici effect. <laughs> and it's like, Okay, so if you're running a company and you have this thing that says like our hypothesis is people want to learn how to play video games better online with a coach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's assume that that doesn't work. Like they don't want to be coached, so but they want to learn. Okay, so what are 10 ways we can help people get better at video games without having them be coached? Yeah. Like how does our company stay alive if this thing is false? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be applied in a lot of ways too, where it's not just like, no, now I'm sad and it didn't work. (laughs) Now I'm on to the next thing. It's like, (laughs) no, no, like how? (laughs) Yeah. We use that acronym HMW, how might we all the time to things. And this goes back to the naivete. I think some people like, but you can't, you can't say yes to, or you can't do all of these things. You can't just give. And yet maybe full circle back to the questions from the book. It depends on your point of view. If it's if 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 you think resources are limited, then you're right. You probably can't. Okay. But if you think that your resources are more abundant or you can be generous, um, maybe even unlimited, if you got the right people involved in things, you can start to shift your point of view. And so back to the questions, like um, let's say my time is scarce. Okay. Where did you learn this? Is it really true? And what do you gain and what do you lose by holding that? There's, of course, things you're going to gain and lose by holding that belief. Uh, Being able to build in intentional reflection time to at least check yourself every once in a while that you're not just working off an outdated bias or or reflexive belief loop there is extremely important because I think it it then helps you reframe maybe your approach to questions or things like that. Yeah. Do you think it's helpful to have like a coach or therapist or someone like that to help call you on that? Yes. (laughs) I think it does. Oh, yeah. I I think it absolutely does. um friends or, or team members or other people who care about you enough mm-hmm. to be able to call that stuff out. Uh, Going back to the book, and I won't take us on any more tangents for a few more minutes. Um, so if somebody sits down and they read, they read, um, I'm going to say the name wrong. Dare to be, I almost said born to be naive, but that's, I was like, that can't be right. Um, dare to be naive. What, like, what is it that you want them to take away from this book because you said you didn't want to write these other ones because they didn't feel like this one was more I, I think you said inspired you were more inspired to write this one so what is it that you want people to take away or feel or or learn after reading it 
Yeah. The first, and it's a, a little bit of a spoiler, is that the word naive has kind of been hijacked uh, and, and it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Mm. Uh, so today, you know, when people call someone naive, uh, it's usually like a pejorative thing. And a lot of times it's like you're ignorant or you're childish or you're unsophisticated, <clears throat> which is interesting because unsophisticated is just like lacking wisdom. <laughs> and yet, like the original meaning of the word naive uh, from the Latin word nativus is just means natural or authentic or innate. It, it was used in, in like a neutral, a positive way, actually, for a long time, up until a couple hundred years ago. So it was meant as like someone who was really being true, someone who was being authentic or natural. And if you think about it, we still use it in that way when we're talking about childlike naivete, right? Like children being naive. It's like they're innocent. They're pure. They are free in some ways. And then we have the next stage of life that piles on all this stuff of like, this is what you should do. And this is how things work and all of that. And what I find is personally, and then professionally, this is kind of what Econic gets called into is like, start to unrip some of that stuff. <laughs> and we want people to go back to being more authentic or genuine or vulnerable or not knowing the answers and being able to learn and adapt and not being set in their ways and think outside the box. All these things that we used to prize, right? <laughs> back in the day. And so what I want people to take away from this is being naive actually might just be a return to something you still have inside of you from the start and actually might even be more natural and innate. And so I believe inside all of us is that kind of generative instinct. Sometimes that voice that's like, no, think of this or believe this or try this or I wonder if. And, and that is a part of each person, but there's a lot of noise that kind of covers that up. And so being able to discover, people are probably going to tell that I'm kind of a word geek. Um, the word discover, I love because you're, it's actually like to remove the cover, discover. Like the thing was there in the beginning. All you're doing is rediscovering that thing which was inside of you from the start. It doesn't imply that something was created. So I hope that people take away that. And I hope that the stories and prompts and ideas really, again, just poke at people enough to say, huh, um, what do I actually believe and how do my beliefs inform the practices that I uh, employ both at work and at home? Now I'm reflecting on, I'm going to, I'll read your book and, and, and I'll, I, I really want to do some reflecting after this too, because I feel like these are all, yeah, it's, it's kind of like what you said, like it's your discovering or uncovering. I don't even know the right words. I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting too much right now on, <laughs> on everything you said. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's, I'm sure you've seen these quotes or read these in books where like as, when you, and, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, like when you become like the older you get, you realize that at some point you kind of like left some of that like childlike part of yourself behind a little bit. And maybe that happens with like some of your naivete, right? Maybe when you were younger, you had a lot of it and then you got taught, well, this is just the way things are. This is how people do things. This is realistic. And you just kind of have to like fall into place and do your thing. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you kind of realize that it's, that's not true. Like you, you, but you can, you can choose. And, can choose. and like you said, it's sometimes it takes some bravery. So you do have to be a little daring because I mean, it's not like you're jumping off a cliff, but maybe some people might feel that way by challenging the status quo in their organization, their personal life, their professional life. And I don't know when you got through the process of writing it, did you feel like, man, I'm at a loss for questions right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> because everything you said was so on point, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> well, I I can I can add a couple more things. Uh, you can. All right. You can, I'm gonna cut that part out. out. <laughs> uh, Alvin Toffler uh, was a futurist, um, and one of the quotes that he's known for at least popularizing, I don't know if it's actually his, mm-hmm. but he popularized this quote that was, uh, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read or write. They're the ones who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And the general trajectory of where the world is going, I think requires people to be able to be even more adaptable and nimble mm. and change ready and whatnot. And I, and I think we're seeing people leaning into that and trying things out and experimenting with different things. And so it's, it, I think it's a beautiful time of more and more aspects of nonconformity, right? Mm. And how you follow or what you follow into that nonconformity, like into something different, like I'm, I'm going to be a digital nomad or whatever it might be. Again, it'll work out. It may not work out, whatever it might be. But like, there's this interesting cycle that happens when you're curious and you try something and it worked or it didn't work, but you learn and it wasn't as scary or maybe it was super joyful, whatever it might be. Like each one of those creates like this flywheel effect. And so it's, it's very much this practice that you do need to get into of being able to be curious or wonder what if or how it might be and to try and and I think that that just, I don't know, for, for, for some people, that ends up working out and being a great way to continue to grow and experience life. And this is at another level, but what I've experienced through some of those cycles of, oh, it worked or it didn't work out or whatever it might be, is that each time like the bottom falls out, like it, it there's still something deeper. <laughs> mm. There's still oh, no. something deeper. Oh, no. There's still something like innate. There's still yeah. something natural that's trying to get out. And so that thing that is manifesting itself and unfolding or whatever it might be, whatever you want to call it, is, is I don't know, it, it, it's found, I think, through experience that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and what you said about learning, relearning stuff, it's like you almost have to be an insane expert, like, like a inch wide mile deep type of experts mm-hmm. or to like or it seems that you have to be able to learn stuff very quickly to like a mediocre like kind of learn a lot of things be very adaptable and get to be at a proficient level quickly mm-hmm. that seems to be like the the like two um like if you want to be really successful in your career it seems like those two skill set one of those two skill sets or specialties is like extraordinary so it's it's a weird world because i think in the past it wasn't that way and there were things were a bit more defined like we can you kind of knew like this is how things were going to be for a while things didn't change as fast as they do now and i think that makes some people scare some people makes some people uncomfortable some some people are excited um but it's definitely a whole like a whole new world every few years it feels like so yeah absolutely in fact in fact some of the lists that used to you know come up with what well, here's the top five skills you need for the next five years most of those mm-hmm. have stopped putting out actual technical skills and now they're just more behaviors like curiosity and critical thinking and they're just mm-hmm. they're they're next level behaviors and skills that people need versus coding and design and and any of that, because the the base level things that allow you to adopt 
new ideas. Mm -hmm. The the things that help you adapt are actually the things that are being prioritized more and more and hopefully practice more and more. Yeah. And it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens with college degrees moving forward as well. Because when I see like job postings and they have like, you need a four-year degree in X, I'm just like, but I feel like if they got that four-year degree, everything they learned, especially if it was like computer science is probably outdated. Like they probably had to learn something new. Um, Likely. Likely. Yeah. So when it comes to like learning new things and trying and like adapting to a new skill, like writing a book, this is the first time you've done it. Correct. So what did you like, what did you have to do? Like, how did you learn how to, what was your process like learning to write a book? And then when you were like, because I'm asking for my own selfish reasons here again, because I'm working on my my book that I kickstarted. And I found that sometimes like I, I had estimated like two or three hours per page and I'm finding it's more like 10. <laughs> 10 hours a page but that's like a it's like a long i find it's like sculpting right like you kind of have this like piece of clay that you put on the page and you you like ring it around once and you're like think it's pretty good then you look at it and you're like no that's not that's not it and you're just having to keep like refining and refining i don't know i found some things to be a bit more successful than others when it comes to sitting and writing but i'd really like to hear mm-hmm. what your process is like and then how you kind of learn that skill and strengthen that strengthen the writing muscle. Yep. So I feel like I was lucky that I fell into a writing program uh, with a company that's now called Manuscripts LLC. It was a 20 week uh, writing accelerator program. And oh, I've heard of these, but I didn't know if they were actually legit. <laughs> so, so this one was this, this one was, um, and I can share more of the pros and cons later if it makes sense. But <clears throat> what, what I learned during that program, a few of my takeaways that helped me get to the first draft manuscript. Without it, I would not have. Um, The first one, uh, we were in a nonfiction cohort, and they suggested that rather than starting with, here's your book premise, create your table of contents, pitch your book, etc., start actually in reverse, which is what are some topics you're interested in, and go listen to some YouTube videos, some podcasts, read some things on it. Each time you listen to one of those things, write up 50 to 100 words or so on it and start collecting mm-hmm. all these snippets. I think they even call them snippets. Like collect all these little snippets of things. And then after a bit, uh, we'll teach you how to go find experts on those little snippets and talk to those people and write up a little bit and see what you learn from that. And so the first several weeks of these 20 weeks, we weren't, we weren't writing chapter. We weren't writing. In fact, chapters were built like towards the end of it all. Once we had collected all of the Lego bricks, uh, Eric, the, the main professor actually said a couple of times before you can connect the dots, you have to have the dots. And so at least what we did is we were dot making snippet making, and then eventually started to find the patterns that came out of that, which is different than maybe a fiction book. Or, I mean, I'm just thinking about the book that you're writing and the story arc that you need to have across that. There's a that would be a very different approach, I imagine. And they actually had a completely different cohort for fiction writers that I'm sure had different techniques. Uh, ours was much more do these snippets. Then um, one of the successful exercises was go to the library and pull down 40 books from your genre and just look at the chapter structures that they used. Because uh, they showed basically like, here's here's Simon Sinek's chapter structure. Here's Brene Brown's structure. If you strip it down, 
it's personal anecdote, story, research, research, secondary story, research. Like they all are pretty much following the similar scaffolding. And and so um, then you can take your snippets and plug it into that and then see where else you need to keep writing. And so from a structural standpoint, those were a number of things that helped. In terms of how I wrote then or when I wrote, um, I benefited from having an early editor who was part accountability buddy and part... Uh, reviewer of content that was helping improve my writing so that each week I was at least picking up a couple of tips like, oh, be more detailed or be more descriptive in what you write or you know, try these things out. But 80% of the time was like, good job, Joshua, you did great, great writing. You got your thousand words in this week. You're amazing. And so that was, <laughs> that actually went a long ways for me. And, uh, and they also had specific like join at this time and write for three hours or two hours and come online. You need to be logged in so that we see that you're logged in and then you type and write. And that also helped me get a number of the big chunks of the book done uh, mm-hmm. where I would, I would be like, okay, I, I have, I have these four interviews that I've been waiting on and uh, I've got those done. I've got the transcripts. I'm going to take three hours and just really turn those into stories and crank out a couple thousand words uh, during one of those writing blocks. Those are, yeah. those are just a few of the things that popped up. Yeah. So when you were working on these writing blocks, what was your, what was your setup like? It was quite boring. I did it honestly in the space right here. I was at my house and I wrote on my MacBook right here. I, yeah. I didn't. As I'm thinking about it here, because it's now been almost two years. I used otter.ai for interview transcripts. So I was able to pull that in. I, I used Quip as my writing and collaboration tool for it. So so those were two tools that I used. That said, there were people in my cohort who did the booking hotel rooms and got a way to go write. Uh, someone who like always did great writing on the train and so like booked random use, useless trips on a train just to write or other things. And so um, I was able to figure out how to do it more or less uh, in my space, though I did have to block off some evenings and just tell the rest of the world, like I'm in writing mode and shut everything down on the computer. And I mean, I have Mm -hmm. four school age kids. So it was also like, no, this is, this is dad writing night. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? Six to eight months, probably to get the first draft of the manuscript done. And then quite a bit of time for all the revisions and copy editing. And then uh, I ended up switching publishers. And so that added another several months to it, which I guess that actually goes back to another thing too, is um, one of the big tips they gave is like, write something, set it to the side and write the next thing, set it to the side and write the next thing. Cause you can spin too much (laughs) on perfecting that page or that paragraph or whatnot. And yeah. And so being able to truly get that like shitty first draft out of the way Mm. and then come back to it, that was, that was extremely helpful. And yeah. So the way that that worked well too for us is we had by that time a, another type of editor that was working with us that I could just write something and then like plop it over to their queue and then move to the next thing. So I wasn't even really allowed to go back in and start tweaking until they had gone through and done a pass at some stuff. And so that that helped not over obsessing about every single little word choice. Dang. Yeah, that's a good idea. I feel like I should probably do that because that's that's where I'm where I've been spending most of my time is like. The first, I think that's from like Anne Lamott's book, Shitty First Drafts, The Rule of Shitty First Drafts or something like that. And like I get the first draft up and then I'm like, okay, fine tune and fine tune. And then 
I realize I've spent my entire writing time on one page <laughs> and I haven't made it past that page yet. Um, and I, so I do think that maybe that is a good idea of just saying like, okay, we're literally just, you're going to write the first draft of chapter one. And then you're going to write the first draft of chapter two. And then when that's done, we're going to come back and fix it. <laughs> it Once you're I, done. I, we'll come yeah. Back. I don't, I don't know if this is true. So this is just an opinion, <laughs> but I, I assume generating the first version of something versus refining something for the fourth time uses different parts of your brain. And so it's mm. probably a little similar like to multitasking mm. in which that you are having to context switch into a different type of thing that you're doing. That's my hunch. Uh, and so there's there's probably smarter people listening to this who understand the science behind some of this. But I think that that allows some of it just to get out. The other part that I'll say, you're recalling all these good things from the writing group now, is way earlier than I felt comfortable, they urged us to start to share early chapter drafts with advanced readers and building that community. Uh, for a couple of main reasons. One, it I think it it got us over the fear of, oh, is this even any good? Because you're able to say like, this isn't very good, but I'm getting it out there and people know it's an early draft. But two, like it, it started to build that community of people who then saw their fingerprints on the work yeah. itself. So by the time I had my book published, um, there's probably about 120 people who saw at least one early chapter of the book and had read it and given me some feedback on it. And that was very intentional for me to get better, but also for community building. And I do think some of that led to why we had a few thousand pre-orders even before today's launch day was because we had enough people who were part of that community and it wasn't, it's, I mean, these are lessons from our startup dates, right? Like mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're just MVPing and testing and, and, and gaining early so customers before they're customers, right? Yeah, it's getting your... Uh... What's the word? It's like advocates or your your raging fans or loyal fans or whatever whatever the term is. Yeah. People that will be your your um, basically spreading it for you. Your community of people. You you hope so. I or the ones who hated it. I sent the what, the intro chapter to several people who did not like the premise of yeah. the book or the idea at all. And it back to our earlier comment. Like I got it and it hurt and. And I'm still here. Like I survived that day too. And so there's there's growth in that. And uh, as a, another mentor then told me, they're like, great, you, you, you got to a spot where you're not trying to please everybody. And yeah. you're okay that this book is not going to land for, for everybody, right? There's right. the reason why the book is still called Dare to be Naive and not be curious or be a change agent or something that probably <laughs> would be more palatable to more people. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, it's true. It's like if everybody kind of likes what you have, no one loves it or hates it. You maybe you probably didn't really make anything like that different or yeah. that like, you know, you haven't really done anything that's tried to be extraordinary. It's just kind of like you've tried to make everyone happy. And it's probably vanilla. Yeah, that's quite possible. Quite yeah, possible. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe it's great and <laughs> everybody loves it. But but I feel like if you try to make everyone happy, you you don't make anyone you don't truly make anyone like that excited or that happy. Yeah. I think it comes back to what the intention, right, is mm. of what the book is. And I, I eventually got over the spot of I'm selling a book for the hundreds of people around me and writing this book for that. I'm not writing a book for the mass market or for millions of people. And so I mm -hmm. think even Seth Godin does a good job of talking about what's the smallest viable audience 
well, you have to answer what viable is for you if you're mm -hmm. trying to do it. And if, if part of the goal of your book is you need it to sell millions of copies, well, then you're going to approach things differently mm -hmm. than that. Econic works with a dozen companies a year or so. Like I, I don't need to please everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can afford to be out there and be a little bit more provocative and allow it to be an attractor to the type of work that I want to do. Uh, I just finished Hidden Potential, Adam Grant's new book. Mm. Right, like that's that's a great book, and it's written for a very wide mass market audience. I'm sure there was so much testing and everything that was done to say, is this pal palatable to enough of the right people? Mm -hmm. Right, but but it, it aligns with the intention that he and his publisher had for that book, and yeah, so ours so aligns with our intention too. Right, right. I mean, it sounds like you've done the work. But I have this feeling, and I, I think other people can tell in a way. Like when when you when you consume something and you feel like somebody's like poured their like heart and soul into it and they've tried really hard and they they cared a lot. There's like attention to detail. It's been through like tons of changes and testing and iteration. I'm saying that when it could be an art form too, right? Like <laughs> they're like making it better. A book, whatever it is, I feel like you can get a, a video. You can kind of tell when you see it, like how much care has been put into the entire process. It almost, maybe it's more of like a feeling you get. It like has, almost has more value. Like, do you know what I'm, do you know the feeling? Yeah, I, I know about? what, I know what you're getting yeah. at. It's, uh, uh, years ago I read, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know some people love that book. I was just okay with the book. So yeah, that's yeah. on record now. But, I agree uh, with you actually. <laughs> so, but, but. What I appreciate in the book is like, they're trying to say like quality, right? Like it's that feeling, it's that thing, it's that essence. It's the, it's, it's the thing that is alive within it. And like, when you see it, you can sense it and, and we're attracted to it. And, um, and it's ridiculously hard throughout the book and everything for people to be like, well, what is quality? Well, it's like, you can't, but, but I know it when I see it and yeah. we may just miss that. But yet at the same time, like we all kind of know what we mean <laughs> when we say yeah. that, yeah. right? Like it's, it is there, there's, there's some heart in it. There's some feeling in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in back to the subtitle, there's so much noise that is out there today that it's easy just to go along with the flow. I mean, again, you as you, I think I've seen you do a nice job with your Kickstarter and being authentic and putting it out there, uh, et cetera. You're going to be confronted with the same questions and prompts that I have and I'm currently getting probably while we're sitting here, which is, oh, you now need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And um, I was supposed to be like spamming 50 people an hour to get me reviews on Amazon today. And I, I've sent like one message. And so I'm, I know I'm failing at that today, but, um, but it comes back to like what feels authentic and intentional to you, right? <laughs> like, like what feels quality to you. And there's a whole bunch of noise out there that's like, no, 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 but you're not doing it the right way. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have a good friend. His name's Scotty Russell. He's like a, he started out as like an illustrative lettering artist and, and then he became like a full-time, like he just became a full-time artist <clears throat> through, and he like started a podcast that was ended up being like one of the top creative podcasts. And I don't know. He's just so good about like, he has all, I, I feel like he could have been a poet at some, in, in a previous life or something because he says he has so many little like one-liners that are so relevant to this and 
uh, what's the one? Oh, he's like, you're not pizza. You can't make everyone happy. So, <laughs> so it's like, whenever you're doing anything, people are like, oh, you want to grow your Instagram following? Do like follow, unfollow people. Like try to game the system to like fake your community and stuff like that. That's why I brought up Scotty because he viscerally hates those things. Cause he's like, you're not actually doing, you're not building a sustainable, you're not building a fan base. You're not building people that you have community with that care about you, that you care about them you're you're kind of building like shallow work you're doing shallow work you're not and that's i think it's the same thing when you're like spamming folks <laughs> for reviews you're like they don't know you you're just kind of like throwing a shot in the dark for them to somebody to say yes and then be like wow best book i've ever read and <laughs> and um so it's i think it's uh i think it's really important to build that authenticity into your community as well and people can definitely tell when you care. And and when you do care, like Scotty's never going to have to get a, worry about getting another job in his life because when he makes something, he has a hundred people lined up to get it or a thousand people. And like he doesn't have a million followers. I think he has like 45,000 or something like that. But they're all, it's all organic growth. All people that have followed him since the beginning and gotten to know him and gotten to know his family that's and cool. seen his art change. And I think that's how you do it. That feels very authentic. I like yeah. that. Thank you for sharing right. that. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. So I, I know I'm taking up, we've gone over a little bit on time. So I just want to ask you like a like couple, one or two more questions. And of then, course. And then I'll, re, I'll, I'll release you to go celebrate your book launch today. <laughs> um, yeah. So if somebody was trying to, if they, if they came to you and said, Josh, I feel like I've done pretty well in business, or maybe I, I want to write a book on something, um, what advice would you give them? Hmm. Where do they start? Yeah, I... I think the first thing to start with is why. Why do you why do you want to write a book? Um, for the majority of us, uh, it's it's not a good return on investment if you're trying to go by pure numbers or anything like time and energy and everything's put into it. And so I think you do need to be intentional about your why uh, that you're trying to do it. And um, so why why do you want to start your book? Uh, the second thing is I would ask the person to identify. Well, maybe even before book, I would say, is is that your medium? There are some people that maybe a book, it feels like that's a thing I should do, but maybe videos, maybe podcast, maybe music, maybe poetry, maybe something else is your medium. Like don't get locked into right away like you got to do the book thing. Um, I think that's, I think that would be an exploration. Assuming you're like, nope, it's, it's a book because of these reasons. Find some books that you love and admire and and figure out why you like those books and what you admire about those books. And that was extremely helpful for me. I, I am, I am uh, uh, definitely not a closet Seth Godin fan. And um, so I was very intentional if you can't see it from here, but I can go grab his. Yeah. Just give me one second. Yeah, you're good. There is a Seth Godin size of book. Right. Mm. And I was very intentional about the book that I was writing because I love uh, his approach, his prose, the way he signals things. And I wanted to have some signaling around that. So it was intentional about finding trim size. It was intentional about the things that I appreciated from it. And I was honored that I was able to send him my book and he blurbed my book. And so I've got an awesome Seth, Seth Godin blurb wow. right there on the book. And so, um, and that was a huge moment for me to say, like, oh, like someone I've admired for 15 years saw me. That was pretty cool. 
but it came from this like, okay, what type of book do I want to write? What are books I admire? Why do I like those things? And then some of that stuff kind of just manifested itself from there. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, so if I had to summarize, yeah, if I had to summarize, it was like, find, like, ask yourself why, make sure it's mm -hmm. your, the correct medium. And then if it is the correct medium, then go find books and writers and like the things that you like or love and, and figure out why and see if you, if there's elements in those that inspire you to like inspire your process. Yeah. But well said, it, it, you just need to get started is, mm -hmm. is part of it too. And I think I find those little things like help you. Yeah. Kind of get started with it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a, a, just a small side tangent. Have you ever read any of Brandon Sanderson's stuff? He's a fantasy writer. <laughs> Uh, I have not read any Brandon Sanderson, but we have 30 or 40 of his books in my house. What? <laughs> uh, because I have two boys who love Brandon yeah. Sanderson books. Uh, so much so that I even reached out to Brandon because he's from Lincoln. And yeah. so I tried to get in contact with him recently. He's apparently too popular now and doesn't he's... just do... Yeah, I, I had no idea how popular he was when I reached out to him and got <laughs> got somebody from his team being like, oh, no, 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 no. Brandon doesn't do little birthday videos for children anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's the type of guy that if you if you met him personally and asked him, he'd probably do it. But there's that's probably what it feel, that's what it felt like. That's yeah. what it felt like. Yeah, there's probably people that are there and to protect him from himself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what's your what's your point though? Sorry. So so as I was, I I just discovered his books a few months ago, and I've just like been on a tear through them because it's such fantastic. I've been so impressed with their writing, and I went back and I read his first book that he ever wrote because it's all in like the same universe. And his first book was so bad compared to like his stuff that was further along. And I realized that from reading like his stuff that was so exceptionally good, it actually has made me like a better reader and by default a better writer. Because after I finished um, the last book of his, Way of Kings, I went back and I was reading some of my stuff and I'm like, oh, this is trash. Like I got to rewrite all like like this. I And I saw where I was making mistakes where when I originally mm. wrote that page, I was like, I was like, this is pretty good. Yeah. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about this. And then after reading like this magnum opus of this amazing author, I'm like, okay, back, back to the drawing board a little, maybe I need to like fine tune it a little bit. So I do think finding, <laughs> I do think reading amazing works really helps. Consuming amazing it, works helps. I agree. I, and if I recall from Brandon's life, I feel like he wrote 10 or 11 books before even that first one got published that you mm -hmm. read. And so like there was, there was a lot of iterating that he had to be able to get to where he's at today. Uh, I also would recommend for you and for anybody, just the value of a really good editor early on, mm. like a really good editor makes a huge difference, a mm. huge difference. Uh, in fact, Back to that Adam Grant book, I was fascinated in the acknowledgement section to read the entire team he had helping write that book, like the research people and the people who were doing it and the couple of editors and the reading group. And like, it was, it was a whole team writing that book from the way that he describes it. And so um, I, I do think modern authors write together, right? That's not mm -hmm. just a solo thing and it doesn't have to be prohibitively expensive. Yeah, that's true. I feel like with the advent of AI, 
being able to help with editing at least one of the drafts that could speed up oh, yeah. the process and open the doors up to people who are potentially good storytellers, but maybe not as good writers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Somebody sent me an article how they were they were using Grammarly Plus mm -hmm. uh, a GPT. Did you, did you see this? Mm -mm. Basically, you can you can use like Grammarly and it'll teach you how to get better. But if you then also put in prompts to say, okay, now GPT, maybe do a custom one or just 3.5 or 4 to say, teach me what I did wrong. Mm. And being able to copy and paste those drafts into there, mm -hmm. using it as a writing coach, he said mm. that accelerated a lot of what he had done. And so I, I typically hadn't been using it and I haven't used it yet for that to be yeah. honest. But to be able to say like, okay, go back and give me tips yeah. on the common errors you saw that I created there. Mm -hmm. And that would be amazing to like continually try to get better. I've used it a little bit, but it's mostly been for like, like you said, copying and pasting it in there. I didn't think about the coach piece, but I was like, okay, is, is this good? Like, do I have all the, like, I would ask yeah. questions of in comparing this to like, like I want to write a book that's worthy of being a bestseller, worthy of being read by a lot of people. Um, that's impactful. Is this, does this, is this well-written? Is there anything missing? What would you change? And some of the stuff that I got in response, I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. Like, I need to make sure that actually makes sense. I can't just throw in a character and just like pretend somebody else knows who they are <laughs> when, when, like, <laughs> when like they've just existed in my head. I can't just throw them onto a page and be like, this yeah. is Jeff. And now Jeff is here. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I think there's some That's great feedback. Yeah. 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 Being able to use it like that or, or the same copy paste and just what are common, what are the consistent errors I made in that mm -hmm. writing? Yeah, for sure. So just to be respectful of your time, I'll, I'll, one more question for you. And that's, um, so you've, you've had a lot of experiences. You've seen a lot of new things started. You've, you've been a part of starting new things, some failures, a lot of learnings. For people out there who just want to get something off the ground, whether it's a startup, a book, make some personal life changes, do some reflecting, start a new hobby like for people who are just like in that point because i think a lot of folks feel probably have felt this um since like 2020 when the world kind of changed a lot at that point if somebody's looking to kind of kick something off that's new and different what advice do you have for them yep it's it goes back to something you shared before about the travel and that's what is the next smallest tiniest action you can take I, I love the visual of motivation and action and that most people are waiting for motivation uh, to act. And yet it is a cycle because the moment that you act, it actually creates motivation to act again. And so it also can be a flywheel. And so oftentimes being able to take the smallest action is what you need to start to get energy into motion. Uh, the Who wrote Tiny habits the bj fog not sure um i, th I think J and, and then i think like atomic habits was more popular but i, th I think tiny habits was was bj fog mm. and what i loved about some of the examples in that book were if you want to start working out every day start by just putting out your gym clothes in the morning like don't even work out just just set out your gym clothes you know mm. and then the next day just put the shoes on that's it that's all you need to do or you know what when you have a break do one push-up that's it just try one push-up because typically what happens is you're down there and you do one push-up and you're like, 
I'm already down here. I guess maybe I'll do two, right? Like, So what is the smallest, tiniest action you can take and treat it kind of as a little bit of an experiment? Um, make it where failure is okay and, and, and then see where you, where you go. So that's probably where I'd, I'd say it's, it's motivation, waiting for motivation to get action could also be treated as do action to get motivation and yeah. see how that gets started. Yeah. I think that's great advice. It's like, start small do something that's easy to make consistent, like easy to do, not a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So any, any final words about like how it feels now to have your, your first, your first, I, I guess I would call it like your first piece of art out into the world and with thousands of people opening their box up today. <laughs> I guess just um, may, may this next chapter of all of this be exactly what it needs to be for me and for all of those people. Sounds good. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show, Josh. I appreciate you stopping by today. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you.